Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Capoquin Library is home to a bicycle called Rosinante, or Ros, ridden many years ago, full tilt from Ireland to India. It was the first of a family of bicycles with no gears whatsoever. They carried an intrepid, passionate, humanitarian writer and prodigious spirit from nearby Lismore all around the world. It's her birthday today. Dear Dervla, here's a small card with much love. A few weeks ago, in one of the endless tidings of life, I came across a postcard that we had made for the celebration of revolutionary women in the west of Ireland during the commemorations for 1916. It's a black and white photograph of a group of young women in sensible tweeds and men's hats standing by their bicycles. They look cheerful and resolute. It got me to remembering how important and what an egalitarian machine that two-wheeled friend has been to poor people over the last couple of centuries. The bicycle dispatches, run by the women members of the Citizens' Army and Common Naman, kept local intelligence flowing during the times of secrecy and revolution here. Many were those swift, apparently harmless journeyings. My Aunt Delia, small and freckled, carried the butter that she had made along with the messages she was asked to convey from Drumquin to Clare Castle. Think of those strong but weary legs. I remember reading that Maura Comerford, mighty, tiny, common-among heroine, cycled the 60 miles from her mother's school to attend Thomas Ashe's funeral in Dublin in September 1917. They left Wicklow at 5am and were in good time for the funeral mass at noon. Those young women and young men had their counterparts worldwide. In the Russia of 1917, if the 3rd Cycling Military Battalion had not switched from the Imperial to the Bolshevik side, what a disaster might have become of the People's Revolution. True too in Gandhi's India and Mao's China, as people there rose to protest or oppose. On a journey with Anoiga to China years ago with my sister Mary, we often witnessed the furniture of an entire household being conveyed front and back of a modest bike by a very skinny cyclist. In India, I saw a family, father in the saddle with a knapsack child, two babes in a basket out front, one on a carrier, and another in a small, handy-looking trailer with the mammy. As a child, for self-propulsion, myself and my brother Matt had a tricycle and a small car which is sat into and pedalled on the ground to get along. We would shout to Mother, We're off for the two days, and make sorties to the bottom of the garden. But at last we graduated, after wobbles, to the noble iron steed. In Ireland, all my growing-up life, We were a cycling country. My brothers cycled to matches. The uncles cycled to dances 40 miles away. Romantic souls of every sort cycled to meet their fellows halfway across the country who cycled the other half to meet them. Swathes of all sorts of citizens crisscrossed the island and came back to work or to the farm in the early hours. Men wore their caps. Women wore their headscarves. We whooshed down hills, shouting at the wind, We cycled to the sea for a swim, to school, to college in Earthford Terrace. My dear pal Miriam Ann O'Connell rode a very small low nelly, and I had a very high nelly, so we must have been quite a sight bowling along the green. Another aunt, Anne, my godmother, was an inveterate bicyclist, 
often to funerals miles and miles away. To the spa, to Kilfenora, Liscanor, Ennis Diamond, Corrafin, anywhere. Prodigious journeys. There was a destination to all of it, a place or a person and an event to arrive at. Mother flew along with a basket on the front, holding the messages, and a child on the carrier. Fathers, too. Our father, Paddy, cycled home uphill to his dinner in the middle of the day from the Custom House in Dublin to a mile beyond Rathgar and cycled back after. There were cycle parks like forests in the middle of O'Connell Street, full to bursting and manned by low-sized fellows with green ribboned caps who for sixpence or so stuck half a raffle ticket in your handlebars and gave you the other half and generally kept a sharp eye out for passing villains. In those days... Bicycles were of the sturdy, big black variety. Men's had a crossbar and women's had an upward bar of curved metal. People sat upright like they do in Holland, where cyclists own the country. In the violent 70s, I crisscrossed Belfast on a faithful rutter, carrying all sorts of video equipment and getting a fool's pass from the various barricades in so-called no-go areas. During the early days of the lockdown, a good neighbour and myself were able to cycle off to a nearby inlet for swimming. Nowadays, I meet waves of helmeted figures, all slim and lycrid, hurtling along, communing with the tarmac. I have no trust that they are really going to meet the beloved or to bring back a pound of butter from the shop. For them, the bicycle seems to be a means of high-speed dreaming. As Flann O'Brien says, they may have become... Half man, half bicycle. With its revolutionary possibilities, zero emissions and egalitarian credentials in a world of unequals, to honour you and today's birthday, dear Dervila, tis time we sent Greta Thunberg a bicycle. I first met Dervla Murphy in the Metropole Hotel in Cork in the 1990s. We shared a platform at a public meeting on the changing landscape of Irish foreign policy against the backdrop of the Balkan War at the time. She is an insightful commentator on the war. I, in my capacity as someone engaged in the global politics of biodiversity. To my surprise, Dervla revealed the rather endearing quality of needing to sit to deliver her address that night because her knees knock with nerves when speaking in public. Luckily, her fear was confined to such events, or we would not be graced with 26 epic travel books, accounts of her incredibly courageous travels to the remotest regions of the planet. And lucky for me, Dervla's public shyness propelled her towards the exit lounge swiftly after that meeting, where we got talking and struck up a friendship and a wonderful conversation that hasn't stopped since. There are few people who've travelled so far and yet so lightly on the earth as Dervla Murphy in her 90 years. Never having owned a car, she has happily cycled the world whilst living a simple, no-frills life in Ireland in between. She will be a fitting symbol for the world we now seek, 
beyond fossil fuels living in harmony with the natural world. One of my abiding memories of Dervla is on one of my first trips to stay with her in Lismore in the 1990s. She suggested an early morning walk with her beloved dogs and a swim in the River Blackwater. I enthusiastically agreed, clearly without thinking it through, and certainly not conveying my less than Olympian abilities to swim in a wild flowing river. Dervla took off in her inimitable style, head bowed, striding down the main street, dogs in tow, skirting the imposing walls of Lismore Castle estate and making the ascent towards a thickly wooded area overlooking the river. She muttered something about avoiding a bull as we came down to a wider clearing in the river and the river came into view. It didn't appear to bother her too much, so I followed on, reassured by her robust presence and knowledge of her local turf. As I was battling with six-foot-high nettles closer to the riverbank, I turned to ask Dervla rather wimpishly how one might get through what I regarded as an impenetrable barrier. But she was already almost out of sight, swimming upwards against a current, having silently entered further upstream. Nettles were not an obstacle. It was a simple but revealing insight into the unceremonious nature of Dervla's well-earned stripes for true grit. It gave us a good laugh later. It also gave me the courage to ask Dervla a lingering question about her book, Full Tilt, a captivating account of cycling from Lismore to Delhi in the 1960s. Dervla had carried a revolver on that trip, which she had used for when attacked by wild animals in what was then Yugoslavia. I wondered where and how a young woman like herself had learned to shoot in the small town of Lismore back in the day. Dervla matter-of-factly answered, in the Knockmeal Down Mountains, with the turnip, as you do. This is what is so refreshing about Dervla. She follows her own unique path, her own innate spirit for the joy and freedom of travelling on her own terms. She has remained singularly independent-minded, not shackled by what we now see as the controlling mindsets of the time. Not then, nor now. Dervla was literally on her bike, going in the other direction, rooted in Ireland, in Lismore, which she loves, but always looking outward, with interest and real concern to the wider world. One of Dervla's earliest memories is of hiding under the table in her home as a five-year-old girl in the 1930s on hearing Adolf Hitler's voice on the radio. She had a visceral, instinctual feeling of real threat, an intuition which has stood her in good stead, as has her remarkable discipline and work ethic for study and reading. She maintains an extraordinary ability to keep up with complex geopolitics and is blessed with that much-coveted ability to get up with the birds, rising at 4.15am each morning, waking to BBC World Service. Interspersed with regular updates from Al Jazeera and Radio Erin, Dervla is probably one of the most informed people in Ireland about the state of the world by 6am each morning. Her detailed observations from her travels are important now, as they span six crucial decades. They stand as extensive, meticulously researched, independent eyewitness testimonies of changing landscapes and ecologies, as cultural histories of the fortunes of remote regions of the world, of the deeper richness of every place, and of intimate concern for the lives, land, people and communities who live in that great place we call elsewhere. Dervla introduced so many of us to such places and people through her writing, allowing us to share her empathetic worldview, moving us to question further, to act or to change 
by her encounters, whether in Tibet or Afghanistan, Cuba, Ethiopia, Israel and Palestine, Ireland and beyond. Dervla deserves all the praise she has been given and will get on this, her 90th birthday. Such an inspiring role model, not just for women, but for everyone, to remain curious and concerned about the world and for as long as you can, if you can at all, to get up on your bike. You never know where it may take you. Brelo Hanna Dervla, Augustlointia. I moved to Belfast for three years in 1972 to work on a PhD thesis at the Institute of Irish Studies, which was part of Queen's University. This was during the most violent period of the Troubles, but I liked living in Northern Ireland, primarily because I liked the people, whom I found to be intelligent, well-informed, and with few illusions about politics or anything else. In the decades to come, I found that the same was true of people in Baghdad, Damascus, Nicosia, Jerusalem and Kabul. My interest was rooted both in sympathy for the victims of intolerance and in a sense that it was in such divided societies that the political, ethnic and sectarian tectonic plates of the world ground together. I took on board that nobody knew as much about this as the people who lived there and all a reporter had to do was to listen to what they had to say. I grew up in the town of Yule in East Cork at the mouth of the Blackwater, a few miles downriver from Dervla Murphy in Lismore. But I came to her work quite late. When I did so, I realised that she had always been doing the same thing that I was trying to do, and doing so much more effectively and eloquently than I ever did. I was in Afghanistan 58 years after Dervla was last there, but I immediately found that Afghans, despite endless wars, were very much as she had described them. I thought I knew the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic pretty well, but I found that she had written much the best book about that peculiar and dangerous place. This approach to reporting may sound obvious, but depressingly few of the foreign governments planning risky interventions and occupations seem to realize the importance of eyewitnesses on the ground. A Swiss diplomat who lived outside the green zone in Baghdad in 2006-07, the most violent period of the war, was treated as a guru by his diplomatic colleagues. But he told me, his most accurate information came from his cleaning lady, who came from the great Shia quarter of Sada City. Grim experience, and the expectation that these experiences are likely to recur, means that people in divided countries are hyper-conscious of the world around them. This may not be good news for them, but it does make them more interesting to speak to. It used to be said, for instance, 
when I was in Moscow in the 1980s that no Russian over a certain age could have avoided having an interesting life. Revolutions, wars, famines were inescapable, however much they may have wanted to live quietly. The same is true today of your average Afghan, Kurd, Syrian, Libyan, Lebanese, Iraqi, Yemeni or Chechen. Though people living there often undervalue the interest of what they know. Constant friction sharpens minds. Notice how people stopped at random in the street in Belfast by British television interviewers are far more coherent than their counterparts in London or Manchester. Sadly, the most interesting countries in the world also tend to be the most fragile because of their divisions, making them vulnerable to foreign intervention and domestic strife. When I first went to Baghdad in 1977, it was a city of many communities. But today it is the Shia Muslims who have emerged as the winners and the Sunni once the dominant sect who are living in isolated islands of fear. Yet these victories are seldom permanent. And again, this is something that comes across in Dervla's books. As witness the failure of the seven million Israelis with complete military superiority and backed by most of the rest of the world to uh, suppress the seven million uh, Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Sadly, over the last century, the great cosmopolitan cities of the world have turned into monocultures, the most recent casualties being Beirut, Aleppo and Mosul in northern Iraq. Part are destroyed by ISIS, who drove out Christians, Kurds, Shia, Turkmen's, and other minorities. People who live in divided societies are often in denial about sectarian divisions. I often think of a splendid statement by a unionist politician in Belfast 50 years ago, asserting his non-sectarian approach. You can strip yourself naked, he said, pour melted butter over yourself and worship a daffodil. All I ask is that you don't ask me to do it too. I know the town of Lismore and its environs well over many decades. What I know of Lismore also extends back through memories of the writer Dervla Murphy's childhood that she has related to me, and they extend back to stories related to her by other people, including a woman called Granny Godfrey. In 1941, when Granny Godfrey was 90 and Dervla was 10, she passed on to Dervla living memories of the famine in Lismore that she had heard as a child. Granny Godfrey was born in 1851, as the famine drew to its close. She recounted to Dervla how, when she was ten, she had been told of people crawling along the verge in front of St Carthage's Cathedral during the famine, pulling up grass to eat. In 1995, I was with Dervla when the then-county librarian called into the old market 
to give her a copy of The Famine in Waterford, 1845-1850, a series of essays published as part of the national commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the famine. West Waterford was devastated at the famine's outset, losing almost half its crop of potatoes by 1846. The Lismore workhouse was quickly oversubscribed with applicants, as Tom Nolan describes in his essay in the book. The workhouse had been completed in 1842 and was meant to offer the most meagre relief in the barest possible conditions for up to 500 people. By the end of Black 47, 700 destitute people, many stricken with disease, were thronged in the wards that loomed behind the stone reception building with its curved grey door. That door. Every person seeking relief from certain starvation had first to pass through there and be interviewed by the administrators. One of the inmates was a woman named Mary Tobin, who achieved an entry in the minute books in January 1850, after she'd entered the workhouse with her nine children, for the crime of becoming pregnant after her husband's death. The minute books record that when questioned, Mary said she did not know the name of the father of her baby, only that while on an errand for the workhouse master, she had met a man on the road between Lismore and Tallow. She was punished by having her food rations cut until her baby was born. I had long been drawn to these crumbling structures, which one could walk through freely for many years, though the infirmary to one side was still in use as a community hospital down to the 1980s. Knowing the remains of the workhouse as well as I did, knowing the upper road between Lismore and Tallow, which looped through the tiny townland of Monotrim, and then coming to know Mary Tobin's story, I felt haunted. One more account amongst thousands we carry in our heads about the appalling treatment meted out to successive generations of impoverished pregnant women. By the 1990s, only the reception building remained, fallen on hard times. You could simply step through the opening where it once had been that formidable front door. But the building was not to suffer the fate of erasure. In August, Wurzel, Dervla's distinguished mongrel of ancient years and perfect behaviour, and I set off up the road from the old market to the workhouse to discover how it has since come to be fully and faithfully restored, and just as importantly, why. It felt humbling to knock unannounced at the beautifully reconstructed front door where all applicants to the workhouse had once stood to knock, including Mary Tobin, with her nine children. Ours was quite a different reception. Wurzel and I were welcomed in and invited to stay for lunch by David and Eileen Feeney, who bought the ruin from Waterford County Council in 1999, tipping away at it over years until they could finally move in with their family. David has always worked in restoring old buildings. He knew the scale of the work needed, the sensitivity and architectural precision to reclaim what is possibly the most beautiful stone dwelling in Lismore. Knowing also the place of workhouses in our history, David and Eileen reflected on that history differently. It is people who cause harm, not buildings. The German critic 
Walter Benjamin wrote that the work of memory is far more than a mere report about the past. Genuine memory yields an image of the person who remembers. It pulls on all our felt senses and places us in right beside the person who takes on that work of remembering, returning us again and again to the task of making sense of what has happened and why. This is exactly the work Dervla has accomplished for us over her long life of writing. Mary Tobin, Granny Godfrey, Dervla Murphy, David and Eileen Feeney. Last month, I passed the memories on, knocking at the great door of the workhouse. Again, this time, an expected visit. My two grandchildren were either side of me, one of them now ten years old. Oh, and the ever-courteous Wurzel with us too. I bowed my head to Mary Tobin before we went across the threshold for tea and cake with the Feenies and so much to discuss. Walpuri people of Central Australia refer to their land as Nguru. It also means sky. The English equivalent that's been adopted by them and other Australian Aboriginal people is country. Its meaning doesn't correspond to any common English usage. It doesn't mean nation or state. It doesn't mean countryside. To be on country is to be at home, away from settlements, in some place that your people have owned or that has owned your people since creation began, or begins, or will begin. For the Walpuri, this is not land that can be bought or sold. It's not a commodity. It can't change ownership any more than the sky can change ownership. In its shapes, its hills and rocks, its creeks and plains, its stands of mulga and desert oak, it held the essence of Walpuri existence. The songs which belong to the land are repositories of knowledge, geographical, historical, mythological, magical, ceremonial. The Walpuri believe that beyond the edges of their territory, the country does not know them. It can't be relied upon to support and protect the way their own country can. It might even hurt them, make them sick, unless they've been correctly introduced to it by its traditional owners. Desert people removed from their country are not so much fish out of water as fish held in tanks, the new environment is not only meaningless to them, it is potentially hostile. The Pintipi were the last of the desert people to follow their traditional lives. When they came in, during the 1960s, they were taken to a government settlement called Papanya, away from their own country. The Pintipi built their shacks and humpies as far to the west of the settlement as they could go, in the direction their own country lay. Even so, many of them did not survive beyond the first year. As for my own country, I have no idea where it might be. I know my nationality is written in my passport. I remember the house where I was born, on the edge of a sooty industrial town, and I remember some features of the district. Our orchard, 
the fields beside it where we made dens and the crops, the cemetery across the road, which had tidy parts and wild, overgrown corners. But that was not my mother's country or my father's country, and it was never mine. I don't have any sense that I belong there. Closer, perhaps, in emotional tone at least, was the Welsh mountain range where I spent every spring and summer, and many winters as well. The shapes of that place, from the ever-changing faces of the peaks to the resting boulders, the rocky humps and outcrops, the smooth contours of the sheep-shorn foothills, the bracken fields and the oak woods, all these are much more firmly imprinted in me. I know every grass plant, every feature, every vista. But even so, it's not my mother's country or my father's country, and it was never mine. So is it here in the Burren, where I have lived longer than anywhere else? These bosky glades and limestone pavements, the melting layers of the bare grey hills. I feel that when I can climb clear of peopled places, this country sees me and is curious. The raven passes over to check me out. The hare in stillness watches. The ways through the ash and hazel reveal themselves to me. The place retains its confidence and vigour, and to be up there among the clouds is curative for me. But for all that, it's not my mother's country, nor my father's, and it can never be mine. Familiarity with a place, love for a place, affinity with a place, none of these things can create belonging. It's a mistake to believe that any relationship with place that I might develop can come close to the attachment the desert people have for their country. It is marrow deep for human and place. The attachment is mutual. There are places in Australia, far too many of them, which still await the return of people who will never come. I'm in that fish tank as well, me and nearly everyone I know. We might find belonging among people, but not on country. Most places, in any event, have had the life drained out of them. Their eyes are closed. Their consciousness is dormant. Let's hope it's dormant and not extinguished. Is there a way out? Is there a way for us to become new people, to approach country with curiosity and humility? If we listen well enough, might country teach us the language and the state of mind we need in order to commune with it, to wait until it adopts us and brings us back to true belonging again? It was thanks to a young Irishman working at the Edinburgh International Book Festival that we were introduced. He told me that a famous Irish writer will be visiting Palestine and would like to meet me. I have met many writers and journalists over the years who came to visit my country and see for themselves what was happening there. But as I was to find out, you, Dervla, were different. It was the autumn of 2008 when you called from the Walata refugee camp in Nablus. You said, I will be coming to Ramallah 
Can we meet? I was shocked to hear that you were living in Balata, one of the poorest and most turbulent of the refugee camps. I was sure you were the only non-Palestinian living there. When you arrived at my office in Ramallah, I asked you, how was the taxi ride from Nablus? I never take taxis, you told me. I always take the bus. Then you said, there is a demonstration in the central square. Shall we go and join them? I was ashamed to say that I rarely take part in demonstrations and gave the excuse that we cannot because we have to wait for my wife Penny to join us for lunch. I took you to one of Ramallah's good restaurants, but you would not even have a salad. I only want a beer. I haven't had one for the past two weeks in Rai Balata. You then told me how you only have a big breakfast which lasts you the whole day. I needn't bother about food after that, you said. To someone like me who is so passionate about food, this came as a shock. I was concerned about your safety in Balata, that people might take you for a Jewish settler or that you might fall while trekking through the rocky hills without marked paths. I convinced you to buy a walking stick and I drafted a letter in Arabic which you could show if stopped or harassed by Palestinians who were suspicious of you. As I learned later, you never used either. All this revealed my ignorance about the sort of person you were. Many travel writers place themselves in trying and dangerous situations in order to write about them. Your purpose was to understand and make the world better understand about the plight of the Palestinians, and that was why you placed yourself in the most dangerous areas. After you consumed two large beers, I drove you to the bus stop and left you there, still worried about what might happen to you. A week later, you phoned. You had left Balata and were now in the most threatening of all cities in the West Bank, the old city of Hebron. There you lived among the resilient small population of 1,000 Palestinians in the old city who had managed to remain after the over 7,000 residents were pushed out, leaving behind a ghost town. These Palestinians were the target of daily harassment by the 800 hardline Jewish settlers now living there, protected by twice this number of Israeli soldiers. Soon after you moved in, you phoned. I cannot tell you how angry I am. I cannot remain quiet. I feel I need to do something. I got worried that you might react in a violent manner that will lead to your deportation from the country. I tried to calm you down. All this was proof that I still did not know the kind of person I was dealing with. You've had years of experience of the most brutal regimes around the globe that you visited in your travels. This was just another. You well knew how to control your anger, how not to lose your trust in the basic goodness of humanity and write with passion and intelligence, helping your readers understand the true situation in my country as few could describe it. The next time you called, you had made it to the Gaza Strip after you persistently tried for years to reach that large prison. The outcome of your repeated visits to Palestine were two superb books. Talking to you over the course of your visits made me realize how I had suppressed my own anger, 
Reading your books helped me see how you used your anger to write lucidly about the injustice in Palestine. We were to meet in Dublin in March at the International Literature Festival. You were kindly willing to come to Dublin from Lismore. I was so looking forward to seeing you again, but it was not to be. The pandemic prevented us from meeting. Short of seeing you in person, I extend to you over the air, my dear, dear Dervla, warmest wishes on your 90th birthday. On this morning, Sunday Miscellany, celebrating Dervla Murphy's 90th birthday, we heard The Bicycle and Us from Lilia Doolan. Clara Grady-Walsh brought us Brett Lahana Dervla. Attention was from Patrick Coburn, and Mary Tobin's story was by Joe Murphy-Lawless. We also heard Country by Kate Thompson and for Dervla by Raja Shiada. Music this morning included Tom Waits' Broken Bicycles and Fonny Gal and Lay by Limo Flynn. Al Greto, the second movement from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, was played by Orchestra Revolutionaire A Romantique, conducted by John Elliott Gardner. And O'Carlin Shivyog Shivor was played on guitar by Steve Cooney. The last piece was We Thaw by Geoffrey Gorimol. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey, and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. You can also find out more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.